0: Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine Podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Our theme for this April 2018 episode is all about Ancestry.com. We will start over at the Genealogy Insider blog, where editor Diane Haddad's going to give us the scoop on a television show that is sponsored by Ancestry that's starting up a new season. And then we'll jump into our top tips segment to discuss some great, easy tips for using Ancestry with David Fricksell. He's the author of Family Tree Magazine's 101 Best Websites list. In the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Family Tree University Dean, Vanessa Wheeland will be here to share Ancestry search tips from the upcoming How to Maximize Ancestry.com workshop. And then we'll wrap things up at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan. She's going to share some of her favorite finds over at Ancestry.com. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the news from the blogosphere with Diane Haddad. It's time for some news from the genealogy blogosphere, and we know where to go to get that the Genealogy Insider blog with Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hello. This month's episode is all about Ancestry. So, what's the latest news going on over there?
1: As people know, Ancestry sponsors some of the genealogy television shows out there, and one that a lot of people are talking about just premiered for 2018. It's called Long Lost Family. And it puts on the screen the family searches that a lot of people are conducting nowadays with the availability of DNA searching.
0: Right. That's really taken it beyond genealogy and really got people focused on reuniting, right? Adoption cases and separations and divorces. So tell us about that. And so this show
1: has two hosts who are um, both adoptees themselves and have conducted and found their own birth families. And so they do research for birth families and adopted people who are searching for their birth families to help them find each other. So you kind of go through learning about the circumstances, what the searcher knows about their birth family. And as they look at genealogy records and do DNA searching, everything kind of reveals itself as far as what happened to separate this family. And then at the end, there's some kind of reveal, which is Mm -hmm. often a reunion, or um, sometimes they'll tell the the searcher, this is, you know, the person that you've been looking for has, has passed away. From what I understand, it's very... Overall, it makes that emotional connection. So, even if you're not doing a search like this, you will be pulled into the series and need your box of tissues right there next to you. Yeah,
0: I imagine so. I mean, there's some really amazing stories. I mean, I know the one you mentioned in the blog post was about a woman who, you know, the last time she saw her sister was in a courtroom when she was seven. And can you imagine no, like having that
1: memory haunt you for your entire life?
0: Yeah. Now, not everybody obviously has cable anymore. The, a lot is changing with TV watching. So, how do people watch Long Lost Family?
1: So, you would need a service that offers TLC or there's this TLC Go app which you can use to stream the channel you need to have one of their partner services. So when you go to get the app, it'll have you log in and you'll be able to choose your service. And if your service isn't part of the, a partner with the TLC app, which mine isn't, you can get past episodes through Amazon Prime Video or on YouTube.
0: Right. And so the services would be, I think it's like if your cable company is part of their, yeah, partnership. I have that with some other channels as well. And if you're an adoptee searching for your birth family, you can also get some other resources that you have there at Family Tree Magazine, right? Yes, we have a book
1: coming out called The Adoptee's Guide to DNA Testing. And that is available for pre order now, but it ships starting in July. And it kind of goes walks people through the process of using their DNA as part of their adoption search.
0: Right. And again, ancestry is sponsoring this television show, Long Lost Family. That would be a great way to kind of see what's possible, I I imagine, and then turn to some of those great resources. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for kicking us off on this uh, All About Ancestry episode, and I'll talk to you next month. Okay, sounds good. In this Top Tips segment, I've invited David Frixell he's the author of the 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Family History, back to the show to talk about Ancestry's role in the list and to give us some easy tips for using Ancestry. Welcome back, David. Hi, great
2: to be here as always.
0: Great to have you here. I- I'm curious, how long have you been doing the 101 Best Websites list? Well,
2: I think I've probably been doing it since 2003, I was wow. editor of the magazine when the magazine launched, and we first did the 101 best websites. And then, after I left the magazine, I started doing the uh, taking over the 101 uh, myself. So that feels like a long time.
0: Wow, and I'm guessing Ancestry's probably been on that list the entire time.
2: I think Ancestry's been on there ever since it existed, and that's yeah. the same uh, you know length of time that we've had the list.
0: Gosh, it's made such a big impact now. We're going to kind of expand our little top tips segment here to kind of be part of the, our 101 best websites, because that would be your segment as well. And I'd love to, before we get into the tips, talk a little bit about, for somebody who's new, somebody who's new to genealogy and they're getting started with ancestry, it's really a much different experience than it was for those of us who've been doing this since the beginning. When we started, we use the path of kind of starting with ourselves and then working backwards and searching for relevant documents along the way to kind of, you know, prove things. But now when a new user signs on for the first time and they put their grandparents' names on a family tree, they start getting fed almost immediately with hints and other trees, and that can kind of cause people to jump around. I'd love to have you kind of share with the audience, what do you recommend, particularly to new genealogists? Even those who've been at it for a while, who kind of feel like they are jumping around or they're just in responding mode, right. what do you recommend to them when they first started using Ancestry with a methodology well, that you use?
2: I think that's right. That when you know we first started using Ancestry, it was like you know a library that you could access electronically. In effect, you know they had databases, and so it was cool. You could go to a specific database and try and check something. And then when they got the census, that was great. You could use that as a tool, and so it was much more you know, research-oriented that, you know, you're here's a challenge that you're trying to address or somebody you're trying to find or a family you're trying to trace. And now they've added all the hinting technology and all this sort of thing, which is cool, but it can get kind of confusing. You know, you end up following those little shaky leaves until you no longer know what you're doing or where you are. So while well, it's great to check on the hints, you know, I, I'd advise doing a little bit more in a traditional way and thinking, okay, you know, what problem am I I trying to solve? What am I trying to learn? What am I trying to prove about my family? What uh, question am I trying to answer? And then go to Ancestry, and I often use specific databases on Ancestry rather than just throwing in a name and searching, because they'll give you, you know, all kinds of finds. But that might not answer the question you're trying to find, which is, you know, where was great-great-grandpa in 1870? Well... Go to the 1870 census, then, you know, and try those very specific things rather than getting swamped or just following the hints until you, you know, you kind of lose where you're at.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that too. I think it's, there's nothing like the human brain to kind of follow the path to know, you know, what the questions are. And it's exciting to see those kinds of things pop up. But I think if you stay on a path, then also when you get those nuggets, they make more sense to you versus just kind of random willy-nilly. And I like your idea about really focusing on specific collections and looking through the card catalog because it's in there and saying, you know, which one do I want to tap into?
2: Well, often when you're searching too, the search is a little different depending on which collection you're using. So if you're just doing sort of the broad brush, I'm going to search everything, uh, you might actually put in things that you think you know that will knock out specific databases. Or, you know, the classic example is if you're looking for, let's say, a marriage record, and you so you're filling in all the forms, all the blanks in, in Ancestry, and you th- you're pretty sure you know when your ancestor died, so you put that in and then you click exact because you really know that. Well, that means that any record that doesn't have a death date isn't going to show up. And, of mm-hmm. course, that means unless... Your grandfather knew when he was going to die when he got married. Um, <laughs> that was not going to happen. You know? Right. So you could easily you know, lose out on information by sort of being overzealous and casting too wide a net rather than you know, really zeroing in on specific you know, databases.
0: I think that also makes sense because there is so much more than there used to be. So you think you're doing a very focused search, but you're still going to get zillions of results, which that can eat up your time too. So as you say, kind of digging in, using the search engine that's specific for that collection, you're also going to get less to have to slog through so that you can find them quicker.
2: Well, also when you, when you run into, you know, when you draw a blank, um, and, you know, you have an ancestor who's hiding in the census or, you know, not where they should be or whatever, if you zoom in on specific databases, sometimes you can use tricks that you, if you use them for the ancestry-wide search, you'd get too many results or useless results. So, I mean, you can use wildcards, for example. I found ancestors where, you know, they try to do a good job on transcription, but it's just like, uh, and then a wildcard turns them up you can, even in Ancestry, and this sounds extreme, you can search for a place and a date and just leave the name field blank. Obviously, that's not going to work if you're searching all however many million databases. Right. But if you're searching one very narrow database, you know, I, I want to find somebody who is about 35 years old living in this place in this census, that actually will work to turn them up. No matter how badly they've been transcribed, or what weird name they've adopted, or you know what other you know strangeness is causing your ancestors to be, you know, quote missing.
0: Well, and that makes perfect sense because sometimes an accurate name can actually work against you <laughs> if it's not accurate yeah. in the results. Right, it's not going to help. I love exactly. it. And sometimes unconventional strategies. What are some of the other things that you use?
2: Well, with ancestors? Okay, I mentioned wildcards, and that's easy to overlook the use of wildcards. But keep in mind that on Ancestry, if you use a question mark, that takes the place of any one character. If you use an asterisk, it takes the place of any number of characters, including zero. So you can use that at the end of a name, for example, to both truncate it or to, you know, I mean, I've got Lowe's, L-O-W-E, in my family, for example. So they often just show up as L O W. So if you search for L O W asterisk, you'll find them. Unfortunately, you'll also find Lowenstein, for example. So you have to be really smart about, you know, using uh, wildcards. But often, I think they can find things that others can't.
0: Can we um, remove things? Can we, you know, subtract and say, don't give me this one?
2: Depending on it, sort of depends on the database. Mm-hmm. But you can sometimes say, you know, a minus sign kind of kind of deal. And, and get rid of stuff. Right. Um, another sort of oddball one is to use, there's a, that keyword field in a lot of them uh, of the databases, and often that seems sort of useless. It's like, well, it's a keyword. Well, it could be a lot of things. It could be uh, a title like reverend, for example. I've got a lot of Methodist ministers. So sometimes if you use met, reverend or Methodist, you could ser- you search for a ship name, you can even try uh, a job like Carpenter, or even sometimes I've tried putting a maiden name in the keyword field, and because it just sort of searches for you know anything that, uh, that might be in there, and sometimes that'll pop up because a lot of it is just sort of trial and error of you know what can we make uh, you know work?" And you know maybe they're a mason, you could try Mason" in the uh, the list there.
0: Right, and depending again on the collection that might show up, I think people see that field name of keyword, and they think that means no names, but you can absolutely put names right, right, yeah, exactly, multiple names uh, in fact,
2: right, so it, it actually can be a fairly powerful and I've had success with ancestry, I mentioned you know searching without a name if you've just got dates and places, sometimes you can search for on a relationship with a partial or, uh, no name. Uh, you have to specify the relationship, but in effect you can search for, you know, anybody who is listed as the child of, uh, this person and sort of work backwards. It's, I think sneaky, I guess is the message here. Yeah. There are all kinds of ways and ancestry is pretty forgiving about letting you leave things blank or, uh, you know, you don't have to be exact on things or spelling variations, all those sort of things that can help you tease out, you know, the data or narrow down when you have way too much data, too. It's also a problem.
0: Right. And if you're not sure if it's going to work, what the heck, go ahead and try it anyway, right?
2: Yeah, there's no downside you know, yeah. to try. <laughs> and you can even try, you know, sort of playing one database off against another. You know, you can uh, look for somebody in a state census and then Use that information to find them in the regular census or, you know, play off a, they have a lot of city directories, which are very useful. That's how I solve some of my biggest, you know, mysteries. So use the city directory to find them. And sometimes that's where you'll find, oh, they've changed their name and they've gotten remarried or they, you know, that kind of uh, thing that will – it's suddenly the eye-opener that finds that person. What you put in the world happened to them? Yes. Uh, well, that's what happened to them, you know.
0: That's a great point, because we can get very focused on that federal census. And if you go to search and then you just pick census, you know, you'll see the U.S. federal census at the top. And and that can kind of draw you in. But as you say, the state census and the city directory, boy, terrific fillers and And, options.
2: Sometimes are in every five years. Yes. Uh, So they're like in between the, you know, if you, you found them in 1870 and now you've lost them in 1880, Sometimes the state census will find them in 1875, and you will figure out, you know, what became of them in the meantime.
0: And they are really just adding so much. I see new records every month. So what didn't work last month could work this month, couldn't it?
2: Right. And it's particularly, you know, they're adding now a lot of foreign things. I have Swedish ancestors, so, you know, they've basically added all the things that I used to have to go use microfilm for Swedish research. And that's just sort of come out of the blue uh, you know, as a bonus to the, uh, you know, the Ancestry subscription. It, they just keep coming. It, eventually, I guess everything will be up there that, you know, we can, that they can get their hands on. But uh, so far, they don't seem to have bottomed out yet.
0: Oh, yeah. No, not at all. Any other tips for us before I let you go?
2: Well, I think you hit on a good one, which is to keep trying. That keep a, I always keep a record of what I've searched. So I know if I go, you know, to go back. And sometimes they've added a new database. Sometimes it's worth redoing the search and just trying it in a slightly different way. You know, two years ago you tried searching for great-grandpa and it didn't work, but you come to it with fresh eye, maybe some fresh information. You know, you've, now you've discovered a cousin's name who might have been living with them in the census, and you find the cousin and that leads you backwards or that sort of thing. So uh, do that and, then, and take note of all the information. Uh, you know, it may be that the other person who's living in the household you know, you can use that person then to find the person that is missing at another point in your research. So, don't give up. Keep coming back to it and trying it in different ways or different tricks that it doesn't, you know, once you're paying for your subscription, it doesn't cost more to use it again. So, Give it Perfect. a shot.
0: Very good advice. And of course, keep coming back to this podcast because we're going to keep talking about all these new strategies, the new records that come along as they do. And we always love to hear from you, Dave, because you got great ideas. You are pretty sneaky.
2: Well, thanks. I like to think so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing all your tips on the Ancestry. Appreciate no it. No problem. Ancestry.com has over 37,700 record collections, and within many of those collections, there are millions of records, and it's growing every day. Well, with so many records, your searches should turn up tons of information about your ancestors, right? Well, if your Ancestry.com searches are leaving you a little bit frustrated, The how to maximize Ancestry.com workshop can help and here to tell us more about it and share some tips from the workshop is the Dean of Family Tree University, Vanessa Wheland. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Lisa. You know, we love that Ancestry has so many genealogical record collections. But of course, the downsize of all that abundance is that it's easy to feel sort of lost or overloaded. What are some of the tips that you've picked up from this workshop that help you kind of deal with that?
3: So the first thing that I've picked up from this workshop is that it's important to take a strategic, organized approach to searching the database. You know, plugging in a name, date, and location can turn up a lot of information, and it's a great start, but it's not necessarily always going to give us the most relevant results, and especially when there's so many results that it's just hard to figure out where to begin. So I would say that the first thing I've learned is to narrow down what you want to search for that particular session whether it's a specific question, like, what's my great grandmother's date of birth? Or, you know, when did so and so immigrate? And then that way, you're kind of keeping your focus on answering that specific question rather than trying to find those results in, you know, or find just everything and getting lost about what you've
4: actually researched.
0: I see that a lot with folks. I think sometimes what they're really struggling with is not the search, but it's formulating the question. And so often, we're just kind of doing more general things. And I hear you saying that it's really about targeting and being really specific, maybe breaking one question into three different searches.
3: Exactly. Even with that, you know, then you can also use Ancestry's tools themselves to narrow your results. So if you're looking for an immigration records, then you can, you know, the natural thing is, of course, to go to their immigration collection. The results under that, when you put in that name, date, location, search, or even, you know, census records, which a lot of times have those dates. So I think you can use those, that information to really narrow your search results and filter them down to what you're researching rather than just this general search that brings up records that may be great later, but aren't really relevant to what you're currently researching now. And that just helps keep from getting overwhelmed.
0: Right. Makes sense. I know that Dave Frixell talked to us about, sometimes it's about targeting the collection. So like you were saying, you can do the general and filter down, or you could go, as he was saying, straight to that collection that kind of pinpoints what you need and then search within it. That would certainly reduce your results.
3: The workshop covers that a lot, the specific collections. And there are all kinds of specific collections. There are international records, there are census collections, there's the what is it? Will's wills, probate tax and court records, land records, that collection, there's all these different collections that you can look through. And sometimes it's easier to just do that than it is to search even specifically by name. The other thing that I have found, and this is a, this is something maybe everybody already does, but I've actually found that Using hints and mastering the hints is a big strategy for searching. And that is because you can build your tree sort of to strategically get better hints. You know, that's something that Nancy will talk about a lot this workshop as well. But having the tree online actually has helped a lot for searching because you can actually even search from your ancestors page. And there's a the search on ancestry button under the timeline. And that's going to give you all the search parameters that you're looking for already.
0: Right. So we don't have to start from the homepage. We can go into the specific ancestor profile and make sure that all that's right in front of us and then go from there. Exactly. Oh, I like it. Now you mentioned Nancy, of course, that's Nancy Hendrickson, and she's the author of the unofficial guide to ancestry.com, right? Yes. And the workbook too. Excellent. So this workshop, I know it includes video presentations. There's seven of them. Is that right? I believe so. Yes. And then Nancy's course is going to be on hand to answer all the questions and do that live and provide feedback and analyze your search results. I mean, if you really want a pro to kind of go along beside you, that's kind of a neat benefit of doing the workshop, isn't it?
3: Absolutely. She's going to be on hand that starts April 30th. So she'll be there all week checking in on any questions that you have and helping out everybody to really get dig down and get the best search results out of Ancestry that you can.
0: Great. So it is the How to maximize Ancestry.com workshop starting April 30th of 2018. And of course, if you're listening to this down the road, these workshops often are run again and again. So head over to the show notes for this podcast episode and we'll have a link to the upcoming class. And of course, you could always turn to familytreemagazine.com and go and search and see what the current class is at the time frame that you're listening. Thanks so much, Vanessa. We appreciate your help. Thank you. going to wrap up this episode. It's been all devoted to Ancestry.com and we'll do that and check in over at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. I've enjoyed this episode and talking. We talked real in depth with Dave Rixell about Ancestry. You know, we all have our own stories, our own experiences and I'd love to hear from you. What are some of your favorite finds and strategies with using Ancestry?
4: Yeah, I have a ton of stories but Ancestry obviously is a huge resource for our community and you know a great tool for anyone doing genealogy and I've been using it for as long as I've been doing genealogy and working at Family Tree Magazine so it's kind of hard to narrow down to just a few things but you know with all of the attention that DNA is getting right now and how important Ancestry DNA has become in the genealogy field I thought I'd talk about like going back to basics and sort of ancestry's roots as a online tool with historical records. One of my favorite resources is still always the census, the historical US Census, because it's such a great jumping off point for any time you're chasing down a new line or a new family. And those of us who have been doing this for a really long time will remember there was a time when you couldn't just log on to Ancestry.com and search all of the census records. That's something that Ancestry was sort of first to do, uh, is putting the U.S. census records online, making them searchable and completely digitized. And it's been such a tremendous resource. I was able to track this one family. I was looking for the Michael Houck family in Cincinnati in the 1880 census, and I just couldn't. Um, figure out where, what had happened to this family. I found them in all the other censuses. And because of the flexibility that you have in an online search, as opposed to going page by page in microfilm or something like that, I was able to get around the fact that Michael Houck, whose alternate names were, his full name was Charles George Michael Houck. So it wasn't under any of those alternatives either. I ended up looking for the children and was able to find that he was enumerated as Herman, which I don't know where that came from, but <laughs> it was Herman Hauck in the 1880 census. And thanks to the Ancestry um, search flexibility, I was able to fill out that last missing census of the family in my research.
0: I love um, stories like that. <laughs> That's so great. And, you know, you, you've really driven home the point that is we think of Ancestry as the records, But really, what Ancestry brought to the table when it kind of entered the marketplace was the power of computing and databases and searchability. I mean, that just really changed the landscape. And it really made, I think, genealogy so much more accessible because it speeds the process.
4: It really does speed the process. And another great example on that front has to do with immigration records. So, again, immigration records, that would include passenger lists and naturalization records and anything associated with a person coming to this country. And obviously, those are sort of a holy grail for anybody doing genealogy because if you want to make that leap across the pond, you got to find the documentation of when they did it and where they came from. And that is, you know, there used to be sort of spread out and you had to Look at microfilm or find the original records. And there's so many passenger lists specific on Ancestry.com now that it's so much easier to and accessible to be able to pinpoint that journey that your ancestors made across the ocean. There's still quite a few records that aren't available online, though. A few years ago, when I was at the Family History Library in Salt Lake City, I was expecting to have to do it the old-fashioned way. I was going to manually look at some naturalization records on microfilm because we were looking at a case study for uh, an Irish immigrant that we were looking to publish. And I thought, well, I've got this Dolan, Owen Dolan, ancestor of my husband's that I was going to try and find his village of origin. I would sort of write about how I did it. Well, it turned out to be a pretty lousy case study because on a whim, as I'm sitting in the family history library with the, like, you know, thousands of reels of microfilm surrounding me, I just on a whim go on Ancestry.com and search in the immigration collection. And wouldn't you know it, although I'd searched for him before, I had enough information now that the naturalization record for Owen Dolan just popped right up. (laughs) There he was. And it had all of the identifying information that I knew about him, and it gave his specific village of origin. So, yeah, naturally, that was a um, pretty crummy case study because it only took me about five minutes of searching because of the power of the the computing that we were just talking about.
0: And how it can it can find people that maybe were listed incorrectly, as you said, with the Hauk uh, mm-hmm. situation, and. And like you said, just one little new piece of info that you have collected could be the field that just breaks it open and pops it right up on your screen. That is so cool. Now, I heard that you're going to have a brand new edition of one of our, both you and I, our favorite resources, which is the Unofficial Guide to Ancestry.com by Nancy Hendrickson. So tell us about that.
4: Right. Well, so The Unofficial Guide to Ancestry.com has been one of our most popular books that we've ever published. And for obvious reasons, because everybody uses it. And so that book was originally published back in 2014, and we did some updates to it in 2016. But given everything that's happened with the site, including the changes to DNA, and new records that have been added in the intervening time, we felt like it was time to do a more thorough update. And so a second edition of that book will be coming out in May, and it will be available through all of the normal book retailers, as well as our own family tree shop.
0: Oh, fantastic. Something wonderful to look forward to for the spring and into the summer. We'll have a link in the show notes, the webpage for this episode, so that you can find the new book coming down the pipeline at shop family tree always so fun to talk to you and how fun to talk about one of our favorite topics i will look forward to talking to you next month thanks lisa Thanks so much for joining me for this April 2018 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Check out the show notes webpage for this episode. It'll have links and info on everything we talked about. You'll find it at familytremagazine.com slash podcasts. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and of course, I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcast, The Genealogy Gems Podcast, which is also available for free through iTunes, and we have an app for that. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.